make sure you're all alert with a nice little word test, which is very simple, all right? Okay, hot, cold, day, thank you very much, yes, okay, life, faith, most people think that the answer to the opposite of faith is doubt, but in fact that's the wrong answer. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but unbelief. In the way the word faith is used in the Bible, faith is trusting or committing yourself to what God has said. It is saying, in effect, I believe. Unbelief is a refusal to trust or commit yourself to what God has said. It is saying, in effect, I will not believe. What then is doubt? Well, let me give you the best definition I've ever heard, which comes from a book, a brilliant book, the best book I've ever read on the subject. It was reissued under the title God in the Dark, and it's written by Os Guinness, who's a great writer and thinker. But its original title, and its better title in my opinion anyway, is this. Doubt, faith in two minds. He points out in the book that the word doubt, uh, its origin is from a root word in English, the English word doubt, which means two. So, doubt is somewhere between faith on the one hand and unbelief on the other. Sometimes nearer to one, nearer to the other. Whoever you are this evening, as far as what God has said about himself in this book, the Bible, and about his son, Jesus Christ, you're somewhere along that line. You may place yourself firmly in the camp of faith. You may say, I've been dragged along here this evening. I don't believe a word of it. You're in unbelief. But from time to time, many of us are somewhere along that line, sometimes nearer to one, than the other. Now, doubt, like temptation, is not in of itself wrong. Just as there are all sorts of factors which may tempt a person to sin, so there are all sorts of factors which may incline a person to doubt. If you can get hold of Osgoodness' book, I think it's still in print, the new edition, but uh, he lists seven different families or kinds of doubt. So, doubt is as it were, faith in two minds. What is vitally important is which mind you end up with, which destination you arrive at. On the one hand, doubt can head towards unbelief and can head into unbelief as a fixed position. On the other hand, doubt can go in the opposite direction and end up in faith, in a stronger faith. And what I want to do this evening is to look at the example, a very honest example, of a man in the Bible who was beset by doubts. He almost ended in unbelief. Yet he ultimately arrived on the firm ground of faith. He's not the most well-known man in the Bible. 
His name is Asaph, A-S-A-P-H. And he describes his experience in the Bible in a song that he wrote about it. When he came through it, he wrote a song about it. Now, we don't have the tune, but we do have the words. It's in the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms. So I want this evening, and I'll be fairly brief, just to trace Asaph's journey from doubt to faith. And you'll find it in the Bible, and it really is important to have a Bible if you're going to follow what's being said. It's in Psalm 73, which is on page 586. If you can't see a Bible, just sort of wave, ask someone to pass one to you, because it really is important that you follow uh, what is being said by Asaph in this song. Psalm 73, and you'll see the heading, the, the, the title is A Psalm of Asaph. That's the man who wrote it, all right? And let's focus on what he says. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I've nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, the people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is God's wonderful word. Now look at the psalm in front of you. You'll see it's got 28 verses in our version. And it's simply divided into two halves. In verses 1 to 14, we find Asaph heading down the slippery slope towards unbelief. 
as he describes the reason for his doubt. Then in verses 15 to 28, Asaph describes the resolution of his doubt as he enters and ends up on the firm foundation of faith. So, let's look at these two in turn. Not as an academic exercise, for each one of us, as I've said, is somewhere on this journey between faith and unbelief. Um, And with God's help, my prayer this evening is that we might head in the right direction and end up on the firm ground of faith. Okay, first of all, look with me then at the first 14 verses at what I want to call the slippery slope. The slippery slope. As we've said, there are many different kinds and reasons that prompt people to doubt. It's a many-headed monster. The particular issue that concerns Asaph in this psalm, as he describes it, has troubled people in all ages and in all places. It was summarized in the title of a very well-known and popular book a few years ago, entitled, Why the Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the corollary, Why the Good Things Happen to Bad People. Now, even to ask such questions assumes something that the categories that we call good and evil, or good and bad, have some meaning. We assume that there should be some kind of moral equivalence between the way we live and the circumstances we face. Otherwise, in answer to such questions, you simply shrug your shoulders and say, why shouldn't bad things happen to good people? Why shouldn't good things happen to bad people? That's just the way life is. Life and death are a lottery. It's the fittest and the strongest to survive and we should expect these things. Now, even people who claim that as their philosophy are very reluctant to push the button and push the issue that far. Even in a society which has outwardly abandoned belief in God, our news bulletins still speak daily of the killing of innocent civilians. And 13 years on, even this week, we are still concerned that someone should be brought to justice, quite rightly, for the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. Now, the Bible says we're all made in the image of God. That is a built-in factor in our lives. That sense of morality, of conscience, of what is right and wrong. And though that image is marred and our conscience is warped, we still cling, however faintly, to the belief that good should triumph over evil and right ultimately over wrong. Now, of course, the person who takes this book seriously holds to that tenaciously. And Asaph was one of those people. He was totally committed to this viewpoint. And we learn that, if you look at verse 1, as he states the principle by which he and his fellow Israelites live. The principle is in verse 1. He starts off by saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Let me restate it. He says, God is good to his people. The people of Israel were God's chosen people chosen to enjoy his favours, but those favours, God said, are conditional upon the way that you behave. They're conditional to those who obey my laws. To those of you who are pure in heart, that's what pure in heart means, it means totally committed, wholeheartedly committed to God. So here's his principle, God is good to his people, who are wholeheartedly committed to him, and he has no doubts in it. He says, this book says it clearly. Surely, 
No doubt. That's the principle he's lived by. But then verse 2 he says, But as for me, but now, Asaph tells us that something has happened to cast doubts on his firmly held belief. To question the principle he has lived by. Something so serious that he has found himself on the slippery slope, sliding towards unbelief, hanging onto his faith by his fingernails, about to fall off the cliff. He can't regain a foothold, verse 2. But now he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. As for me, says Asaph. You see, doubt is a particular problem for a believer because you can only doubt what you believe. If you don't believe in any moral equivalence, you'll say, well, I don't see a problem, Asaph. I mean, I just think that's the way life is. But if you are a believer, if you take this book seriously, if you take God seriously, you say, hang on a minute, God said this. Now something has happened in my life that makes me question it. That makes me question the circumstances. Now, unless you've lived, as a, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in any sense of the word this evening, if you've never been where Asaph has stood, then I suggest you've probably got your head buried in the sand and you almost certainly have never switched on the television or read a newspaper. Because the things that happen to us personally and the things we see in our world challenge our presuppositions, challenge our faith. Now, when that happens, what should you do? The worst thing you can do is to try and suppress or ignore your doubts as though they were not there. They will resurface. As I said a few weeks ago, it's like the person who trusted took his stomach in because it's hanging out. All you'll end up with is a triple chin. No. <laughs> Not pointing at anybody here, by the way. <laughs> no, what you need to do is to expose the doubts, the darkness of your doubts, to the fresh air of faith, fresh air of the facts. For if your faith is so fragile that it can't stand up to reality, then it's no real faith at all. It's worth, worthless. And the Bible, the wonderful thing about the Bible, is full of examples of people who've done this. The Psalms are full of it. The best example of all, of course, is that mysterious book in the Bible, all 42 chapters of the book of Job. He's a good man suffering terribly. And he and his three so-called friends sit debating it as he sits on the trash heap. Psalm 73 deals with it in a much more concise way. Fashion, you'll be glad to know I'm not going to preach 42 verses of Job, but I'll try and get through 28 verses of the Psalms. It, this Psalm has been called the book of Job in miniature. So, in short, Asa's problem, what, what is it that's caused his faith to be shaken and, and to doubt to creep in? It's not just that bad things are happening to good people, him, but the good things are happening to bad people. As he looks around, he's got a problem. And the problem is the success of people who are wicked. See that in verses 3 to 12. He describes them. So he says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks around at people who, who, who don't care at all about the kind of things he lives by. And yet they're doing really well. He describes their prosperity in verses 3 to 5. No struggles, healthy, wealthy, strong. Not a problem in the sky. The result is that they're filled with pride, verses 6 to 8, 6 to 9. They think they're a law to themselves. 
They do what they want, committing acts of violence. They think that they please, plotting further mischief. And they say what they like, making, making inflated claims about themselves. And rather than standing up to them, people gather around them and say, yeah, well said, yeah, I agree with that. They're very popular as well. Verse 10. But worst of all, for Asaph, is their presumption. They contemptuously dismiss any talk that God might hold them accountable. They scoff at the idea that God knows what they're doing. You don't believe that, do you? And it seems as if they're right. For nothing ever seems to happen to them. So he summarizes the wicked in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. They are always carefree. They increase in wealth. Now, no wonder then that Asaph is beset by doubt. He stated the principle that he lives by. God is good to his people. Those who follow God are the ones who have good things happen to them. And then he looks around at people who, who don't care about God whatsoever and they're having a great time. And he's having a miserable time. He's in two minds. Can you see the doubt there? And so he comes to a conclusion. He starts with his principle, but now he thinks, hang on a minute, I don't believe that anymore. I'm not sure. The conclusion is, living a life that pleases God is a pointless exercise. Verse 13. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. And not only that, it says for me it's a very painful experience. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. So rather than experiencing God's goodness, Asaph says, I've been plagued by God. Hang on a minute. Doesn't the book say the plagues come upon people who are bad people? I'm a good person. I'm getting the plagues. There's been a mix-up somewhere. And I'm being punished by God. Surely the book says, God said, if I follow his ways, he'll bless me. And every morning I'm in pain. Now notice something very interesting here. It's the personal nature of Asaph's complaint. You see, you ask yourself at this point, why was he suddenly so concerned about moral injustice in the world? Have not these kind of inequalities been observed since time immemorial? Did he suddenly wake up one morning in a philosophical frame of mind and was disturbed by the moral dilemma that the world poses to his faith? No, he woke up one morning and discovered he was ill. And his illness went on day after day and his problems multiplied one on top of the other. You see, it's one thing to stand, sit in a university common room or even in Starbucks with a cup of coffee and discuss how a God of love can allow suffering. It's quite another thing, is it not, to discuss it when you yourself are suffering personally and painfully. I don't know everyone's circumstances here. Maybe you're going through an Asaph-like experience at the present time. And your life just seems to be unravelling and everything seems to be going wrong and yet you've been trying to, as best you can with the Holy Spirit's help, to follow the way of Jesus. And you think, well, what's going on here? And you've got friends who just don't care at all and nothing ever happens to them. They just say, well, why, why are you wasting an hour and a half in church on a Sunday evening like this? You could be sitting out in the meadows playing frisbee or something. I mean, what? You see, the nature of the personal complaint, the political writer William Hazlitt, who was born at the end of the 18th century, uh, said this, the smallest pain in my little finger 
generates more mental concern in me than the destruction of thousands of my fellow men. Is that not true sometimes? And so we get this dilemma, our faith is challenged. And it's only a short step for personal complaint to lead, as it did with Asaph, to envy. Verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You look at them and think, I wish my life was like theirs, not like mine. And then it's only a further step down the road to abandoning your faith and joining in with the wicked. What's the point of being a Christian? You complain, I want to have a good time like all my friends. And that's the step that Asaph almost took. He said, I was on the slippery slope, heading for disaster. But as for me, he said, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. He is hanging on to God and God's word and truth by his fingertips. Almost gone, but not quite. Somehow his fall is arrested, and by the end of the Psalms, eventually he's on solid ground, the firm foundation of faith. So look at the second half of the Psalm, the firm foundation. Asaph says, I was about to express my newfound creed. That living for God is a waste of time and rather than blessing you if you live a good life, God, in fact, punishes you. He says, I, I just couldn't make sense of it. You know, doubt is a terrible thing, isn't it? He describes it as oppression. I just felt this burden. I just couldn't make sense of what was happening in my life. And maybe, maybe you're like that this evening. Until he did something, he went to a place where his doubts were resolved. Here's the turning point, verse 16. The place where his doubts were resolved. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood. See, Asaph belonged. You can find out about Asaph if you look at Pinnacle Concordance. He's, he's mentioned in, I think it's two Chronicles and Kings as well. All right, those historical books of the Bible. Uh, we learn from that that Asaph belonged to the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was the one of the twelve tribes, the one that the priests were drawn from. You had to be born into Levi to be a priest. So Asaph was a priest who served the Lord in the place where God's people met in Jerusalem. To start with, it was called the sanctuary because it was a special place set apart where God promised to meet with them. Later on, when King Solomon came along, he built, he built a temple and that became the sanctuary People met God. But at Asaph's time, he was appointed by King David, the famous king of Israel. And Asaph was appointed because he had a special gift like some of our folk here. He had the gift of music. Another 11 of his psalms and compositions are found in the book of Psalms, the 150 psalms. Uh, David wrote a lot, but he, he obviously was a bit of a, a talent spotter as well. And he saw this guy Asaph and he had a great ability, musical ability. So he chose Asaph and he said, Asaph, I want you to lead a music group, a choir in, I was going to say Charlotte Chapel, in the, in the sanctuary. <laughs> Some of you guys lead a music team like Tim does leading this evening. We have different teams within Charlotte Chapel. So it's a bit like sort of Tim sitting up there. That was his job. He was chosen to do this. And he did it week by week, day by day. Yet despite this, he was filled with doubts because his life was in a mess. Just because you serve God and are gifted by God doesn't mean you're never to be set by doubts. 
However, he still went to the sanctuary on this particular day. Maybe he had to. Maybe it was just part of his duty on that particular day. Maybe he was leading the singing. I'm looking at these guys up here. Is it not true sometimes you're up to sing or play or something and you just don't feel like it? Oh, sometimes you, you look forward to it and it's great. Listen, there are times when I get a fear to preach and it's the last thing on earth I feel like doing. Not too often, but often enough to keep me humble. I don't know, maybe Asaph decided, right, I'm going this week and that's it, I'm finished after this, I'm handing in my notice to King David. Sorry King, can't cope with it anymore, can't sing these songs about assurance and joy and thankfulness because frankly I've had it, it's a waste of time. We don't know, but the important thing is this. He did enter the sanctuary of God, the place where God had chosen to meet with his people. Now, there are some people who come to church because they love coming to church. There are some who only attend out of habit or because they're on duty. Now, it's best to go because you want to, but it's better to go out of habit than not at all. Too many of us are bound by our feelings. Don't feel like it this evening. I think I'll not bother. I'm not preaching to the converter because you're all here. <laughs> There's probably lots of people who decided to stay home this evening. So I just don't feel like it. And I'm having a bad time as a Christian at the moment. And when I feel like it, I'll go. You're on the slippery slope. And if you're here this evening, at least you're in the right place. Now, the place is not the building. It was for the people of Israel. God chose that place. You don't need to go to Jerusalem now or a temple. But wherever God's people meet together, God commands us to meet together and he promises to meet us as we meet together. Jesus said, where two or three people gather together in my name, there I am among them. Maybe you've been brought along this evening because someone dragged you along. Or maybe you're here because you were worried if you didn't turn up, people would look around and say, wonder where he or she is this evening. And because of appearances, you just turned up. I've said that some people plague with problems and doubt, stop going to church, try to avoid God, stop reading in the Bible, meeting with other Christians. It is the sure path to unbelief because it cuts you off in the presence of God. At least if you go like Asaph to meet with God's people, you put yourself, as Jim was sharing this morning, you put yourself in a place where God can meet with you. And that's what Asaph did. I don't think he had any great ambition. He came into the sanctuary, he met with God's people, and suddenly in God's presence, suddenly it was like a light bulb came on in the confusion of his mind, the oppression lifted, and suddenly he said, I understood. What did he understand? Well, in the presence of God, he gained a new perspective on the two things that concerned him. First of all, he gained a new perspective on the wicked and their destiny. See, one of the things that happens when we are low, when we are beset with doubts, is that we see things in black and white, we lose all perspective. One of my favourite Peanuts cartoons by Charles Schultz is a picture of Lucy and her brother Linus Uh, looking out of a window, leaning on the windowsill, and it's pouring down with rain. And Lucy turns to Linus and says, why does it always rain when I want to go out to play? And logical Linus says, it just seems that way. There are many occasions when you've gone out to play and it hasn't been raining at all. 
And she turns to him and shakes a fist in his face and says, why does it always rain when I want to go out and play? And Linus very wisely says, you're probably a very unlucky person. See, the psalmist says, he says, the wicked, they're always carefree. They never have a problem. They never suffer. But in the presence of the Lord, he saw things differently. The Lord said, hang on a minute, Asaph. Think a bit longer term. He was far too short-sighted. You see, you do reap what you sow, but God doesn't always harvest in September. And he suddenly sees this truth, that one day God will arise in judgment. The wicked will find themselves on the slippery slope, brought to ruin, swept away so utterly, so that their evil and evil lives will seem like a bad dream, a nightmare. As Jesus reminded us in one of his parables, it is to such people who have ignored God all their lives that finally he will say, you fool. And we forget this dimension when we're in trouble. We look at things in the short term, not recognizing that God is the eternal God. In the light of eternity, these things will seem very small. may seem a long wait, but in eternity... It will seem like a bad dream that has just passed. Now, unless you've got a future perspective like that, of a final accounting, then the world makes very little sense. We, we pray for our judiciary, and so we should do. But frankly, friends, many people who commit the most serious of crimes walk around, apparently get away with it scot-free, and die in their beds, some of them of old age. Unless there is some final accounting then this life, frankly, is a joke. A time when the books are opened and all people, including the wicked, will be brought to account. Now, when he sees that, he thinks, well, hang on a minute. He gets a new perspective on himself and his privileges. He says, hang on a minute. How stupid I was. How ignorant to entertain such thoughts about God. And he suddenly realizes, in fact, he is secure all along. Not because of his hold on God, but because of God's hold on him. He is kept by God. These are wonderful words. I don't have time to look at them in detail. Go home and reflect on them. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Just imagine God is holding you by your hand. He thought he was slipping away. If you belong to God, he is holding you with your right hand. He won't let you go. You guide me with your counsel. Day by day, you're going to lead me. And afterwards, you'll take me to glory. The word take is a lovely word. It's the word used of that character in the Old Testament, Enoch, who lived all those years. And finally, he walked with God and God finally took him. Took him into his eternal presence forever. And finally, when he realizes, that's why we sang some of these songs, these wonderful modern songs this evening, because they focus on this fact that God is all we need. That God is everything in heaven and on earth. You see, so often suffering and difficulty knock away the props that we rely on instead of God and we realize that God is all that we needed all along. And we didn't need all the props after all. He's more than enough. He is loved by God. So he says, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, will you notice something vitally important here? When he says this, nothing in his circumstances or those of the wicked has changed one iota. 
only his perspective. Which is now a true perception of how things are. So having come so close to denying God, betraying the next generation of God's people, verse 15, he now affirms, the reaffirms at the end of the psalm, the faith he began with in verse 1. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near to God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. As for me, says Asaph. Now, I'm almost finished. Time is going. We're going to sing a song. But what about you? Can you say, as for me? Is God your refuge? Is he all that you need? Do you know that intimacy with him that satisfies beyond anything else? Are you on the slippery slope or the firm foundation? When we're singing those songs, we're thinking... I don't understand what these songs are about, really. Or you're saying, this is my affirmation that God is all that I need. Final word of conclusion is Scripture. There are times when it seems, we have to be honest, it seems as though the wicked will triumph and God fails to act. The clearest example of this was when Jesus was taken, nailed to a cross, and wicked men stood by and laughed said, if you're the Son of God, come down. Nothing happened. But on Good Friday, when evil did its worst, God did his best. And on Easter Sunday, God raised Jesus from the dead so that we might be reconciled to him and might experience in fuller measure what Asaph knew in part measure and longed for. So no matter what may happen to us in this life, no matter what others may do to us, we can trust him in the assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. For the Christian, whatever stage of life you're in, however old you are, the best is still yet to be. Because he saves the best wine till last. So let me conclude with these words from the New Testament. You don't need to turn to them. I'm going to read them in a more modern translation because for some of you they're very familiar words. But just dwell on them as they come up. They'll be on the screen if that helps. So just listen. These are words of Christian assurance. Then we'll sing a song of assurance. These are the last verses of Romans chapter 8. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity, or are persecuted, or are hungry, or cold, or in danger, or threatened with death. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from his love. Death can't, and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we're high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I simply ask you, can you say yes? Amen. That's my confidence this evening. If not, make it your confidence by putting your trust in Him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing a